0: Uh, if you got a Bible, we are in John 20 tonight. We are going to uh, attempt to cover the whole chapter tonight. We're going to open up with the first, a read of the first ten verses. Of course, we left off um, in this text last week as we are nearing the end, and I really hate to see this book come to an end. So I'm going to make this uh, uh, last few chapters last as long as we can, uh, which is par for the course for our study through John. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I can't wait to. Uh, Start again and and, and see what God has to say to us in John. um, In the future, I'm sure it'll be a fresh uh, word when that time comes. But we've had a great time in our study in John. And tonight we're going to come to sort of a conclusion. Um, Of course, John has an epilogue to his story. Chapter 21 is kind of, um, you know, something that kind of leads, teases a future. But 20 kind of ties a bow on things. Um, uh, Of course, John set out to tell us the story um, of how he became undeniably convinced that Jesus was the Christ Uh, the Son of the living God, and why you should put your faith in Him and have no doubts about it. And tonight we see Him kind of end His story um, in typical John-like fashion, uh, leaving us um, speechless and in awe um, of what God can do and, and who God is. So let's look at our Bibles and follow along and look at the first 10 verses as we read this famous account of the resurrection of the Easter morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloth lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed." And as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead, or they did not understand is a better way to, under, better way to read that. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, obviously, the disciple whom Jesus loved that uh, is referred to is John. John, in humble fashion, will not refer to himself. Um, But the reason why we have such eyewitness details is, of course, because John saw this with his very own eyes. And he wants to give us that um, very specific uh, account of what he saw in the tomb, and of course, if you were to walk in um, into a tomb where someone had been laid to rest three days before, you would pay attention to every detail as well, because you don't normally walk into tombs that were just filled with the dead body and see no body. Uh, so John and Peter both were, uh, I would say, surprised, uh, overwhelmed by the moment, soaking in every detail of this uh, unforgettable and truly world-changing. Event, So last week, uh, we bridged the gap from Friday to Sunday by talking about Jesus' burial ground. Um, he wasn't just laid to rest in a grave, we learned. He was buried in a garden. And of course, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot there, right? In that idea, that theme of being planted in a garden. We spent a lot of time talking about that, um, which, in retrospect, we learned that whole setup is oozing with the promise of the resurrection. Um, as this untilled, fertile ground had never been used, right, for a grave for a body. This garden tomb, uh, uh, when it was uh, received a body, it received a seed. It produced something spectacular. Uh, we talked about this promise we have as Christians. Our God can turn any grave into a garden where death can give way to life. And that is the, obviously, the theological impact of this moment that Jesus' body, dead, come back to life. But of course, we learned a lot of practical things as well. We came to this conclusion in this confession that God, we know that you do not sow in vain. You don't throw things into graveyards. You plant things Into gardens. We talked about the scene that resurrection morning where Peter and John came with the word that the tomb was empty, and we contrasted these two things in closing. Peter saw a grave to him that marked the end. Peter saw this grave. He couldn't understand why there was no body in it because clearly that's what graves are for and Jesus had been buried there. But Peter, when he saw this, he still saw the grave. And to him, this was the end of his faith. This was the end of the movement that he had been a part of for three years. This was the end of what he had given his life uh, over to for the better part of three years. But when he walked in that grave, he just saw it as as what it was. He saw it as the end, the end of life, the end of his faith, the end of the Jesus movement. But John didn't see a grave. John saw it for the garden that it was. He believed that this was the beginning of something, not the end. He saw the promise of a new beginning. As sure clearly as Jesus had been buried, as a seed had been planted... Of course, Jesus alluded to this way back in John 12 when he said, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He spoke of his own body being planted in that grave. He rose back to life. The fruit he would bear would go on to change the world. His resurrection life, his resurrection spirit, which we'll talk about extensively tonight. John believed and John knew. John expected resurrection. This, we learned, and I hope that we can come to know tonight, this is our origin story. This is literally ground zero of our faith. That's what we get from this Easter morning. From the ashes of defeat and death, Christianity was born. It's a big statement, I know, but that is what we are reading about. That's what we just heard. From defeat of the cross, from the way they saw it, from the death of Jesus In this tomb, from this tomb, from this garden, Christianity was born. So we can have this confidence and expectation in whatever we face. That which we dread, that which brings death, can actually work new life and resurrection. Of course, that's the the theological takeaway from the Easter story. Our sins are forgiven. We are no longer separated from God. We are reconciled to God in Christ. His spirit fills our heart, overcomes our sin. That's what we learn theologically from this day. But we also have a practical takeaway. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us or can live in us as believers, giving us hope no matter what we face. Helping us see every grave as a potential garden. Bad Fridays can always lead to the best of Sundays. Crosses can lead always to a resurrection. So we don't hold our head when we see a cross. We lift up our hearts because we know on the other side of that cross is a garden. And on the other, in, in that garden is a tomb. But that tomb is not the end. That tomb is the beginning of a resurrection. This, of course, is startling uh, as we covered the report of this startling amazing news that Jesus' body is no longer in the grave where they had laid him. Of course, that is perplexing and that is overwhelming because dead people usually stay in their graves, right? Dead people don't all of a sudden leave their tombs. And I want you to notice the language here. Um, In verse 2, this is a line in line with how John has told this story. Notice in verse 2, the report that Mary gives Peter, she says, "...they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him." Now, we have this history in John of they, speaking those that were the opposition party, those that were plotting and, and, and working against Jesus... They planning, plotting, and seemingly having control over Jesus. And notice the mindset that Mary is in. Jesus had died. He was still at the mercy of they. He was still being controlled by they because they had believed that Jesus was greater than they, yet he had proven to not be in that he was defeated and buried by them. But John, if you trace back throughout the gospel, you'll see he uses this language to describe the way they kind of sized up Jesus and thought they had the upper hand against Jesus. Back in John 11, in, at the, uh, after the resurrection of Lazarus, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So we see this, this, this attitude from the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious group. They thought they right, could basically put an end to Jesus. They made plans to put him to death, and we see that John is setting up this narrative. Could they defeat him? Clearly, surely Jesus can't be killed. Surely he can't be stopped. We think he is God. We have put our faith in him as God, so how could this end badly for him? Yet the story goes, as they attempt, and they plan, and they plot, and they riot, and they approach him in the garden, they take him into custody they lead him to Caiaphas they lead him to Pilate they cry out crucify him and it seems like they are getting their way John 19 told us they took Jesus to the place called the skull there they crucified him so all along it seems like Jesus is at the mercy of them it seems like Jesus who they thought who we thought was large and in charge now is being pushed around literally being to death then after he dies jesus obviously beholden to nicodemus and joseph who took his body and bury it because that's what happens to people that die somebody comes and takes the body because the body has no ability to take for do for itself and then john 19 40 told us they took the body of jesus and did what you do to dead bodies bound it wrapped it anointed it and buried it but you see what's going on here Mary assumes Jesus is still at the mercy of they. But this story reminds us that he is not beholden nor at the mercy of anybody. This story proves that above all other scriptures and verses, up until this point, they didn't have that proof. And they, what they once thought, the Jesus who performed miracles, signs, and wonders as they watched him seemingly lose, as they watched him suffer and bleed and die, their opinion about him changed. Because the Messiahs don't bleed. Messiahs can't die. But on this resurrection morning, this was a moment of reclamation for Jesus. In this moment, there is a definition of his nature and his power. Mary thought he was still at the mercy of they because clearly he didn't get up on his own. Clearly, he didn't walk out of the grave on his own bower. That doesn't happen. You see how John has been setting this up for this mind-blowing moment? They took him. They killed him. They buried him. Clearly, if he's not in the grave anymore, uh, they had to take him. But John's going to tell us, no, 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 that's not what happened. And, of course, Jesus is going to prove to us that's not what happened. This moment subverts what we have expected to come. As we see a moment of reclamation, we see the nature and power of Jesus defined. Back in John 10, of course, we should have saw this coming, but nobody listened to Jesus until after he died and rose again. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down. He says, I know it's going to look like they take my life. I know it's going to look like they plot and they arrest and they kill, but no, no, no. I am in charge the whole time. I lay my life down and I may, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Yes, he gave up his power to become one with our sufferings, our sorrows, and sin, but those things would not end him like they threatened to end us. And here is our hope, church. As he says, he took back that which he laid down. Nobody took it from him, even though that's how it appeared. This is that moment, this is his time to assert his supremacy, his divinity more than anything And that's why, that's why this moment would forever be the reference point for the church. That's why this is the story that we tell. If you're wondering where to start with the Christian message, where to begin when you want to tell somebody about Jesus, this is where you start. It's from this place that God is able to make breakthroughs into people's lives. This is the message that gets people's attention. We read all throughout Acts that the disciples always started with this story. In Acts 4, we see with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So we see this was what they preached. This was what they talked about, because this is what changed everything. And this is what can change everything for anybody. Of course, did Jesus do a lot of other things? Did he say a lot of other things? Are there a lot of other things in the Bible? Of course there are, and we all get to those things. But the resurrection is the starting point. That is what makes the difference in the the world and also in people's lives. Now, Paul, in the early church, anchored everything on and around the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which I want to show you some verses that he wrote in Corinthians that emphasize this. So that we might get back to the purity of the gospel in our talking and our preaching. Because I feel like sometimes. You know, we deal with people who aren't believers or maybe they're, they, you know, they kind of you know, are skeptical or maybe they have been in and out of church. And we just think, well, you know, how do I get them, how, you know, how do I get their attention? And we think, you know what, well, I've got to make sure they believe in Adam and Eve. I've got to make sure they believe in Genesis, you know, seven days. I've got to make sure they know Noah. And, you know, if they ask me about dinosaurs, I'm just going to dodge that question and just say, well, just believe there was an ark. And I've got to make sure they know Moses and the Ten Commandments. And I've got to make sure they know all this stuff. And I'm not saying that stuff isn't true. It absolutely is. And I'm not saying that stuff isn't important. It absolutely is. But I think we wonder where do we start and what is the most important thing to get across to somebody that needs to be saved? Well, the only way somebody's going to be saved is with the message about that which can save. And I think sometimes we get so confused. And we, we, we live in a world that is biblically illiterate, right? We live in a world that rejects the Bible and it offends Christians, rightly so, when people cast doubt about what we believe and we feel like it's our job, and we feel like we've got to make sure they believe everything we believe, and I think they should believe what we believe, and I think we should teach people what we believe, and we should cover all the bases, but I think we need to get back to the purity of our message. If we're ever going to do what the early church did, if we're ever going to change the world like Jesus changed the world, listen to how Paul kind of sets up, uh, teaches the Corinthian church what they should make the most important thing. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So, Paul is going to give us the gospel right here. Now, let me just say this. Paul could quote the Old Testament from Genesis to Deuteronomy. He probably could quote more, but I know, based on his training, he could at least quote the first five books which is, whoo how could he ever quote Leviticus? Why would you ever want to quote Leviticus? But, anyway, he, did, he could, and he did. Paul obviously knew a lot about the Bible. He believed. He was passionate about the Old Testament. He was zealous for the law and did not want to get rid of it and didn't want to lose the, the, the teachings of it. But when Paul was trying to set the Corinthian church up for being world changers, he says, guys, I want y'all to know what the gospel is, which is what saved y'all. By which you are being saved. This is really cool. Not that, we, that you, we aren't saved the moment we believe, but that we are continually being saved, being sustained, being changed by this message. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, but that isn't the case. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, the end. Now, Paul is saying, I'm telling y'all what saved me, what I also received. What does that mean? What changed his life? Paul, a student of the Old Testament, clearly that wasn't getting him there. He He knew it all and was rejecting Jesus based on what he thought he knew. So what does Paul tell us? Is the most important. What does Paul tell us is the main thing? Jesus died. He was buried because it's what happens with people that die, that you bury them. But what doesn't usually happen is that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, why so much emphasis to the resurrection? Well, he goes on to say in verse 17 if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? The resurrection is the turning point in human history. The, if, there's, if you say, what is the turning point in human history? This is it. The resurrection of Jesus is what gives us salvation. It's what finishes off what the cross started. But if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. Of course, we believe that he has been. But Paul is getting at the message that they were to preach. And again, the resurrection is the turning point. And listen to how Paul summarizes human history from that point of view. As in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all or can all be made alive. So Adam ruined it for all of us. Genesis 1, Genesis 3. Adam sinned, we all died because of Adam. But Christ is a new beginning for the whole world. So what happened in John 20? It is the beginning of the new creation. What Genesis 3 spelled doom for all of creation, John 20 brings hope to all of creation. The curse is reversed. Things are set in order after being set out of order. But each in his own order, Christ the fruits, then at his coming those who belong. So Christ's resurrection was a picture of our own resurrection. When we die, we are with the Lord, but in a physical fashion, we are going to be raised from the grave just as Jesus did. And then the big, big picture. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, destroying every other ruler and authority and power, setting himself up as the only one who's in charge. If the resurrection didn't prove that already, he'll make it where it's the absolutely, absolutely the case. So again, this event set... Brand new reality into motion, and here's our three takeaways we are no longer in bondage to sin, destined to die, and limited to this short life. That's how fundamentally changing the resurrection is, and was, and can be for you. It's the reason why we are no longer in bondage to sin, it's the reason why we are no longer destined to die. And it's the reason why we don't have to think this is all there is. There's so much more. Did you hear that? All of that is true unto us because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the new creation he has set in motion. All things under his feet, subject to his rule, his new rule, this resurrection rule. That's how important. That's why the resurrection is the most important event and should be the starting point for every time we tell the world what God can do, what God has done for them. But I think, for us Christians even, I think verse 9 and 10 depicts so many of us. We don't understand the implications of this event we don't understand what the scriptures are saying to us. And we just go back home and we go back through our lives as if nothing revolutionary happened. You know what I think this is so dangerous for why, why this is irrelevant so to Christians? Because if you're like me, you have heard the gospel since you were old enough to hear. And it's just become normal for us. Even though we've been to hundreds of funerals and we know very well what death is and that nobody comes back to life when they go to the grave, right, or in this life, even though we're well aware that what Jesus did and how Jesus came back to life is not normal, we've heard the gospel so much that the impact it can have on our lives isn't there as it could be or should be. Now, they may have had an excuse, but we we are without an excuse. We see the totality of scriptures as climaxing being fulfilled in this event. We know this was the hope of redemption that Adam and Eve were promised. This is the seed that Adam was promised that sprouted in that garden. This is the olive leaf that the dove brought back to Noah. This is the promised land that Noah, that Moses saw from Mount Nebo. This is the fire that fell on Mount Carmel that can come to every heart. This is the fourth one in the fire. Listen, step into this text, into this moment. The invitation is that we can see and believe, understand that this is what the Bible has been promising and that we could experience from the beginning once God redeems the world. Don't go back to life like it was before you heard this good news or apart from focusing on this good news. Don't go back home, come back to life. Don't settle for normal life, step into life in the Spirit of God. That's the invitation that we have tonight. See, we go back home, and if and we don't come to understand what life can be as a Christian, what life can be like as a Christian with this new perspective, this new creation, we'll constantly miss what God is wanting to do. And we constantly do miss what He's wanting to do, don't we? What God can reveal to us amidst what is otherwise mundane or subpar. Pay attention to, to verses 11 through 14. Let's look at this example. Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and she wept. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting, one, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, think about what verses 9 and 10 tell us. They didn't understand. Of course, they had an excuse, but we don't. She had an excuse. They went back home like nothing spectacular had happened. She stumbles into Jesus. You see what's on the line? If we continue to see life through the old lens and go through life the old way, we risk missing God entirely. Now, what what do we mean by risk missing God? How often, how often do we only after the fact realize what God was doing? in our lives how often do we worry and panic and scramble when we could have been trusting been at peace and have certainty that God was in control the whole time how much grief do we bring ourselves because we see through the old lens and we go through the old way when we know better how often do we settle for the greedy choice instead of the generous choice how often do we settle for jealousy Over gratitude, revenge over forgiveness, bitterness over contentment, hatred over love. And what do we gain when we take those lesser roads? We may gain something of this world, but there is no spiritual fruit down those roads. And there's no inner peace. There's no fulfillment down those roads, is there? There's no blessing down those roads there's just sin and there's just death and we are not people of the grave anymore we're not destined nor doomed to die wallow in the curse and in wrath we are people of light and of resurrection and john's gospel has been all about showing us that jesus is the light of life he is the resurrection he is a way he is the way to a better life so we don't have to go home and do things like we used to do them anymore There's one word that summarizes what becomes of us and fills us when we continue to live this old way, and that's regret. Our lives are filled with regret when we settle for the fruits of this flesh. Regret is a poison that haunts and mocks the ideal that we know we could have, we could have seen, realized, had we trusted in Jesus and went about the new way. As Mary realizes who, Jesus, who that it's Jesus, she embraces him. But he assures her that he has best get going for everyone's good. He says down in 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But, I, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Notice he emphasizes My God and your God, my Father and your Father. His ascension to this place of power at the Father's right hand would give us access to that same power. Jesus would hereafter pay a visit to the disciples to further reiterate the power that's available to them. Look at verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, said this, he showed them his hands, his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So, again, keep with the theme here. The disciples hadn't just gone home. They went home and locked the doors. That's how defeated and stuck in the old way they were. Now, they didn't know yet, but we know. Jesus shows up with two things that we've emphasized again and again in John. He shows up to give them peace and to give them power. Many of us, so often, we are afraid that we can't have life better than what we've become accustomed to. Isn't it true? We've settled for and accepted life in a subpar way. And we think it can't get any better. We think we've got to sit in that room with the doors locked, not realizing that the resurrection changed everything. This shows just how whipped into submission we are by our flesh. The flesh says you'll never get free from fear. The flesh says you'll never get free from addiction. The flesh says you'll never get free from your past. The flesh says you'll never get free from those chains. And we have accepted that as truth, haven't we? Heck, our culture, we prophesy these conditions over our children. And we say, well, you're just going to be like me? They don't have to be. Do we really want them to be? We say things like, well, that's just how I've always been. That's how we've always been. It's just how it's going to always be. That's how we would have to be in a pre-resurrection world. Maybe there wasn't any hope back then, but I refuse to accept on this side of Easter that that's the case. And you should too. Colossians 2, Paul says he disarmed the rulers. What rulers? The rulers that tell you you can't do any better. The rulers that lord over you and say you are mine and you have to obey me. Rulers and authority. He put them in open shame as in he punished them on the cross. He triumphed over them. What brings shame and guilt to you? telling you you that you'll never have anything better, you'll never be anything better. Jesus put that into open shame, and he disarmed those powers. He has given you peace with God. He's given you power from God. His Holy Spirit has filled you to heal you from your past trauma and to deliver you from future bondage. I told you the resurrection changed everything. And if we're going to say it changed everything, we want to make sure we know what everything is, right? That's what it means to you as a Christian. This isn't just about winning the lost people. As Christians, we have went home and locked our doors and haven't soaked all this up. And there's better for us than we've experienced. God, through the Holy Spirit, can heal you of that past trauma that says you'll never do better. God, through the Holy Spirit, can deliver you of the bondage that you might still think you're going to be in forever, in your sin and your shame. Romans 6.14 says sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under that law anymore. You're under the grace, the resurrection power of God. Listen, if if we live this and preach this with our lives, other people could get free just by watching us and witnessing us. That's what I think Jesus means in verse 23. That if they saw us living under this freedom and this power and this peace, they would say, wow, if you can have it, then I guess I'm sure I can too. They would see as we preach the gospel, people would get it. We can bring freedom and healing, forgiveness, and deliverance to others by showing them that we ourselves have experienced it. I think how John closes this chapter brings even more clarity and amplifies this even more. Verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of, his na- of the nails, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Or maybe I won't be able to believe. And after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors being shut, stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Go ahead, reach your fingers here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said, Oh, Lord, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas doubted if this report could be true because he had not seen it for himself. Of course, Jesus gave him such an opportunity, but he sends this message to us all on this side of history. Don't buy into this idea that just because you weren't there when it happened that God can't bring this promise and power and peace to you right where you are. Do you hear that? Thomas thought he missed out and demanded a special visit, and he got it. But Jesus assures us that his story, his message, his work would be big enough and would stand the test of time to make an impact to anybody that hears it. Because his spirit would work wherever this story is told. And of course, that is why John would write the story down. For as many who could hear and read So they might come to know the Jesus that he had. So John ends his story like this. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these, as in I have written these particular ones, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All that John has written down and recorded are to give us certainty that all of this actually happened, including the reversal of creation that we just read about. John puts it on the line like this. Jesus is undeniably the Son of God, the Savior of us all. Just believe, and you'll see for yourself. I mean, John, is it that easy? John's saying, I'm putting my own reputation on the line. I've written this story down so that you might believe, and when you believe, you will have life. Not might have life, not might get a little bit of life. You will have life in Him. Eternal resurrection. Brand spanking new life. John, of course, relying heavily on the Holy Spirit, as any preacher does, believed this story could convince anybody. All these years later, it's still doing it, isn't it? The new creation is waiting on us all. We've read about it. But I'm going to ask you, church, have we stepped out by faith into it? Have you? Or when we get done with this story, are we going to go home and shut the door and say, well, that was nice? Or are we going to believe that there is life, new life, in the man, in the God that we just read about? To help us get there, Thought we could close this study with sort of a confession that we all can make together. I'll read it first and we all can read it together. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. That He rose from the grave, raising me up to new life. Do you believe that? Maybe saying it out loud together. We'll give it a little bit extra spark tonight. Let's go. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is my Savior, that he rose from the grave, raising me up to new life. Me first. I often wonder if I can get free from my past regrets and bondage. But if your Holy Spirit is wanting to give it, I want to receive it. Don't you? Let's go. I often wonder if I can get free from my past regrets and bondage, but if your Holy Spirit is wanting to give it, I want to receive it. May we all receive what I believe God is still breathing on his people tonight. Old things have passed away. All things, even you, can become new. It's too good, isn't it? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Lord, everybody in this room tonight believes that you're God. They believe Jesus came and died and rose again. But we often go home and shut the door. And our enemies show up. And they harass us. And they domineer over us. And they tell us that we're still theirs. But that's not how it has to be, based on the resurrection. Just as surely as everybody that believes in Jesus can be forgiven and saved eternally, everyone that believes and is filled with the Spirit of God can be given new life in Him. As in reversing creation, giving a new order to this world. And everyone that believes can open the door and say, let the new way come in, because the new is coming out. Father, thank you for this promise, this eternal promise promise you've given us in Christ. I pray everybody in here tonight will say, Lord, I want it. I want that new life that Jesus gives. Old things are passed away. Let all things become new. God, thank you for saving us. May we preach this message as pure as it is given to us, to those in the world that need it. And may we as Christians live this message as clearly as you delivered it. We love you, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you and amen.